I turned 25 and then two days later, I said goodbye to the rest of my 20s because I was sentenced to five years. Welcome to the I Did Not Sign Up For This podcast, a bi-weekly show dedicated to highlighting the incredible stories of everyday people. No topic is off limits. Join me as we explore the lives and experiences of guests through thought-provoking, unscripted conversations. And if you enjoy this show and would like to support this podcast, consider joining my Patreon. You'll gain instant access to over 70 exclusive bonus episodes, entries into giveaways, a discount on merch, and more. Your support allows me to continue bringing you these important stories. So head over to patreon.com slash I did not sign up for this and become part of the community. I'm your host, Carling, a Canadian queer identifying 30 something year old providing a platform for the stories that need to be heard. Morning, Madison. Hello, Carling. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. How are you? Good. I'm so excited. We just spent like five or 10 minutes talking about dogs, which is all I ever want to talk about. Like podcast pretty much dogs. every conversation for me though is let's yeah. get a couple minutes of dog talk and then we can talk about the rest of it, even if it's then more dog talk. I love that. Well, okay, I say we're gonna jump right in. Can you introduce yourself? And then I'm super eager to get into your story. Yeah, absolutely. My name is Madison. I am from and currently live in the Philadelphia area. I've resided a little here, a little there, most you know. Most of my adult life has been short stints in different places. And I am a, how did we phrase it? A, <laughs> oh God, I should have pulled it up. Former corporate sellout, turned dog expert. Yeah, canine behavior expert through a prison dog program, which is something that, you know, there are certainly plenty of people in my life that know that about me, but it's not something that. I maybe necessarily share publicly and not for the reason that I didn't want anybody to know. It's tied into what I do and my brand, but it's just something that I guess up until now I wasn't ready for. And it just felt like the time to kind of walk everyone through how I got where I am now, which is not where I expected to be. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes really unexpected and terrible situations put you on the path that you were probably supposed to be on anyway. Yeah. I always feel like the universe is like trying to guide you in a certain way. And like and when you don't listen, sometimes yeah. it has to get a little <laughs> bit louder. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, okay, we're going to try this. Yeah. And here you are on the right path. So <laughs> it definitely feels like I am doing the thing that I was always supposed to be doing and oh. didn't feel like it was, I don't know, viable or appropriate for me to do. But now that I'm you know, working with animals full time and really diving into the world of rescue while still helping, you know, owners with dogs with significant behavior issues who are really suffering all over the world. But then getting to now give back so much of my time to the rescue world has been a dream of mine. It's a literal moment where you look around and say, I'm living the dream that I had. So that's very surreal, but exhausting also. Yeah. I mean, sometimes living the dream is truly exhausting. It <laughs> doesn't mean it's not worth it, but. Right, right. For yeah. the dogs. Who, who yeah. needs to sleep? Who needs to sleep? <laughs> yeah. It's for like the dogs. For, yeah, exactly. So where does your story begin? I think it's interesting if you talk a bit about how you grew up and then maybe how it rolls into how you found yourself as a corporate sellout turned <laughs> prison inmate. So I. Gosh, I grew up so normal. It, it feels weird to say, but it just looking back, I did. I had a really pretty, pretty average and normal childhood. The biggest, I guess, factor of who I was that led into this whole journey was a non-existent self-worth from some point. So when something switched and I no longer liked what I saw in the mirror as a young girl and I started really looking around at others for validation and for identity, which is so super dangerous looking back at how that fostered codependent relationships for my entire life. But no, I was pretty normal, you know, lower middle class kind of family, living in the burbs, swimming, going to band practice, graduated high school, all you know, all of that. I think I was really sold on a generational myth of the college requirement, mm -hmm. which were, you know, myself and probably hundreds of thousands of people within my age bracket are really paying for. We fell into a pocket of 
stupid interest rates. And we're told you really have to go to college and get a four-year degree in order to be a successful human being. And however much you invest in your education, you'll get it back in spades. It does not work like that. That's yeah. not the math <laughs> that, that, that life goes by, unfortunately, especially when you end up with a felony. And we're working in a corporate world where I was following the path that I felt was laid out in front of me, the path of success. I wasn't able to find my confidence and my self-worth in the way that I looked or, the, or at least the way that I felt about the way that I looked or in my relationships because my friendships at that point weren't deep enough, weren't stable enough. So I was able to find my self-worth in the only thing that I really felt confident in, which was for a while, my education. I was a good student, you know, I was a smart one. And then when I graduated, it became about professional success. It became about climbing the corporate ladder. And I don't know that it was necessarily about the salary tied in with where I was, but I wanted to be advancing my career constantly, whether it was in title or whether it was in just networking status. I certainly felt the need to generate wealth to put into a bank account because I was, it felt like that was security, that was safety. So that was my kind of only focus was how fast can I climb the corporate ladder so I can get more money, so I can put more money away, so I can feel safe and secure. So that way yeah. what I have can't be taken. When you're insecure about something, <laughs> even if that's where you draw your confidence, there's still this worry about it, it, it could be gone at any moment. And, and guess what? Yeah. <laughs> That happened literally overnight. Some poor decisions that I had made for months leading up to that was, you know, my whole life had changed and a lot of people were hurt because of the decisions that I made. And it's because that, that non-existent self-worth allowed me to go along with whoever and whatever and anyone that was willing to pay me attention. I was on board with whatever was happening at that moment. So, you know, unfortunately that led to a situation where I was very suddenly on house arrest and awaiting sentencing and not sure if I would be gone for six months, if it would be 16 years. And that was a pretty scary, I don't know, definitely a dark time. Like that's not the wrong word yeah. to use for that. That was a really, about seven months where I was on house arrest in Ohio. So I was a 10 hour drive away from all my family. Uh, and how old were you at the time? I was 24. I so I had graduated so college. I know. I had graduated college and moved to Ohio. And this was within um, about two years of being there. I remember when everything happened and I was arrested, my father was in California on business and he flew to Ohio to be at my, I guess it was my arraignment. There were lots of court appearances and they, they all, I, I don't have a super tight timeline in my mind. I also, it's something that I feel embarrassed to talk about. I have a lot of memory loss from that seven month time. There are a lot of things that people will mention to me and it doesn't even sound, it sounds like something I would do or say, but it doesn't ring yeah. a bell. It doesn't sound even remotely familiar. I think that's trauma, right? Like your brain is just trying to survive what you're going through. Yeah. So after the arraignment and once I was bailed out of jail, which is its own process. And I will say with hindsight, very quickly, I, as much as the trauma I'm sure would have been worse, I wish that I had just sat in jail because I did not get a single minute of credit for those seven months on house arrest. <gasps> oh no. And I couldn't go anywhere. I was on monitoring with an ankle monitor. I had to call and check in once a week. The radius, I couldn't even take my dog like to the bathroom. I couldn't even throw garbage in the dumpster. So I, there was really no way for me to care for myself. So my mom actually took a leave of absence from her job and moved out to Ohio and moved in with me. So it was she and I and her dog and my dog in, you know, a two bedroom apartment for uh, those seven, seven ish months, seven and a half months. Wow. And are you comfortable saying a little bit about what happened leading up to that? Because it sort of involved getting with somebody who was maybe not the best for you. Yeah, I was in the first serious relationship of my life. Again, when, you're, when your self-worth is where it is, I felt like a star to have anyone even notice me and look at me. And this person was definitely not 
not the right partner for me. He had a serious alcohol problem, which definitely seeped into my life in so many ways, you know, and that's where I made so many excuses for myself for non-participation. Well, if I'm not doing it, then it's okay. It doesn't matter that it's happening around me, that I'm enabling it, that all of these things, you know? Yeah. And that's where that codependency, I was I was already set up to be the type of person who would be an enabler in a relationship with somebody with a substance abuse problem. And that is where it just was destined to be unhealthy. And I wouldn't listen to anyone in my life that would tell me otherwise at that point. Well, no, especially at 24, you know everything. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I was, I had everything laid out in front of me. (laughs) I knew exactly what was going to happen. I was really sure of that. I was wrong. I was very wrong. So that was definitely a huge factor in what led up to my incarceration. You know, I definitely take responsibility for all of the harm that I caused along the way. That blame Mm -hmm. can't be shifted to anybody else. But I also know that there were a lot of other factors and people involved. And so what ended up being your sentence? My sentence, after several months of going back and forth because there were some issues and some fishiness regarding evidence during the discovery process, which is something where the prosecution and the defendant basically share evidence because everybody needs to know what evidence is going to be used. So for me, it was a literal flash drive that got mailed to me that I, my mom and I went through, we went through it all like separate from my lawyer. I really didn't even go see my lawyer too often. It was such a process to get approved to even go talk to my lawyer unless it was something that we could have come to us. We tried to, I guess we just didn't really do it. So the offer that was on the table after going back and forth for a couple of months was something called an open plea where you plead guilty to the charges laid out in the plea deal as opposed to the charges that you were indicted on. Right. So while I originally was charged with four felonies an F2, two F3s and an F4, the F1 being the worst and the F4 being like, they actually, I think they go all the way to an F5 in the state of Ohio, which they literally call petty felonies. Oh. Things that that they're going to send people to prison for that even individuals within the justice system call them petty. I'm talking possession, marijuana possession, right? Nonviolent, nonviolent possession. Ridiculous. Yeah. Individuals that are getting sentenced to 23 days in a prison because then that institution gets a check. That inmate never leaves admissions. They never even leave the intake process. So my plea deal, my open plea was that I would plead guilty to the worst and the least offensive of mine. So the F2 and the F4, and then the two F3 charges would be dropped. That open plea was... I believe a two and a half year to eight and a half year range. Now, if I had taken all four charges to the bench, meaning gone to a jury trial, which are very rarely successful, the judge, if I was found guilty, could have maxed me out with 16 and a half years. That would have been what I was looking at with all four charges. So by pleading guilty to the two charges, I was able to basically half the maximum sentence that I would be looking at. So, and at that point we had been what felt like fighting for six months, knowing that going into a jury trial would be the real fight. And we were all just so tired and defeated. And I never wanted to get out of being punished. I knew that I had, you know, done something wrong. And I knew that I was going to prison for that. So it it was going to be up to the judge with that of what, where in that range he was going to select. And The sentencing was two days after my 25th birthday. I remember that. (laughs) I know. And it was almost just, it was like I turned 25 and then two days later, I said goodbye to the rest of my 20s because I was sentenced to five years. It was like I knew that the rest of my 20s were just gone. And sentencing is just, you go in with your loved ones and you leave in cuffs and that's it. And did you know that day that would happen? Yeah, I was really prepared for that. I had done as much research as I could kind of handle in terms of what it was going to be like. So I knew to go in with 
underpants and a bra that were a solid either white or black because otherwise they'd be taken. And I still managed to screw it up. (laughs) Like, how did you screw that up? I had white underpants with like black on it. And it was, it had to be all one or all the other. And I still remember when I got to the actual prison complex, not the county jail, because I went back to county jail to sit for a week before transport. Uh, But when I actually got to the prison complex and they took my underpants and they were, you know, going to give me another pair. And I know this sounds crazy, but she asked me what size and she says they're like in they're in numbers and i had gained a ton of weight on house arrest because like i just was eating what all the buffalo chicken eat? and ice cream yeah yeah i was <laughs> eating it all yeah and like i i couldn't move i couldn't go anywhere i wasn't just going to jog yeah. in place funny story fast forward to me in prison jogging <laughs> in place she says they're in numbers i'm thinking okay well where i was with my pant size i i thought i would probably be like a 12 so I told yeah. her at 12, I don't know what sizing system they use, but she handed me these underpants and I'm unfolding them in my lap. Like what? And they were so big and she would not then exchange them out. So I had to like tie them at the hips and she gave me five pair because that was your allotment. And like, that was my allotment for the next quarter. And I'm like, I- I'm going to be able to parachute out of here with these. Like this is too much. And it, ugh. Everything was a battle. Swapping out the underpants was a battle. They put my wrong, my birth date wrong on my ID that day. And I told them, I'm like, no, I said this date. And they said, that's not what you said. And it took me months to get that fixed. Oh, no. And it's, you know, it's concerning when your when your file is not accurate. Yeah. And do you remember, I'm always interested in those moments of like, did you get to say goodbye to your parents? And what do you say or what do you do in the moments? It kind of reminds me of the Hunger Games where, you know, Katniss knows she's going and all this stuff and they have like a minute to say goodbye and then they whisk them away. Yeah, there was none of that. We really had to make sure that we had done that beforehand because it was an emotional day because for the first time really in the whole process spoke and just, you know, wanted to start the process of apologizing for all the people that I hurt. And it was pretty much right after that. The judge has everyone stand up, says what he needs to say. He does the gavel thing. And that was it. They walked right up, cuffed me and took me out a separate entrance. Wow. And there was no, I didn't get to hug them goodbye. Within three minutes, I was in the back of a cop car. That's terrible. And I think like you're 25, Like, I didn't know anything at 25. I, you know, I'm 39 now and I think 25 is so young. I And now you're just alone with the prison system. Yeah. And once, you know, once my apartment was done being packed up and my family left, you know, they were 10 hours away. It was a year before I saw them again. My dad, thankfully, was able to make some business trips kind of local to the area because he worked nationally with the company. So I was able to see him a little bit more often, but yeah, it was really hard feeling that isolated. When I got there, the first 30 days were a blur in the intake. Everything's just about them teaching you rules and getting you onto a schedule. So you're woken up at 4am by officers kind of stomping down the bays. One of them like to sing rise and shine directly next to your head. And then you would march two by two to chow at 4.30 a.m. And you did that three times a day. And, you know, you don't really get anything to start out with. I remember having to trade some celery sticks from my lunch for a hair tie because my hair was so long. And at the end of intake, if your hair is longer than your shoulders, they chop it Uh, because there was a hair length maximum, which was your bra strap. It couldn't be longer than your bra strap. So I knew I was going to get my hair chopped. I didn't have a hair tie at first. And I actually got a institutional write-up within the first 30 days because my hair covered my ID tag, which we all wore collared shirts. The ID tag had to be on your left. Like it had to be clipped on and visible at all times. And on a windy day, marching to chow two by two. you know, your hair blows and covers it. And I got a write up and those things can be the difference for some people between early release and not early release. That wasn't, you know, something really that was in the cards for me. Part of the plea was that my sentence would be mandatory. So whatever the judge 
sentenced me to, there would be no early release for that. Right. It blows my mind that they wouldn't give you a hair tie. Like, that just seems like the most basic thing. There was a lot of essentials that we, like, things that we would consider essential that they really didn't provide. You know, you ended up with 20 to $22 a month of something called state pay because we all worked. That was supposed to be enough to get your shampoo, your conditioner, your soap, your toothbrush, your toothpaste, your everything. And then, you know, the commissary had a ton of snacks and certainly lots of folks had money put on and shopped more than that. But if you were on some type of restitution or fines or legal fees, your money, anything over $25 a month was taken from you and sent right. So even if somebody put in your commissary? Yeah, because I had a $10,000 fine. So anything that was put on my books past that $25 limit a month, they would take. That's unreal. One thing I found interesting when we had talked before booking the recording was like what happens with these enormous student loans? Because you think like, oh, your life just kind of gets put on hold, but not really because you still had an apartment that, you know, you had to get rid of and you still had dogs and you still had, I guess your job when you were arrested and went to house arrest, did you end up having to quit your job? I guess that you could really look at what my company did as quite a kindness in that moment. I don't really know what they could have done differently. Um, but they ended up putting me on unpaid leave, which meant that I was able to at least keep using my health insurance. And I'll tell you what, I definitely went to the doctor before being sent away and kind of was like, vaccinate me, do it, all the stuff. Let's go. Yeah, Cause I knew I was going to be gone for a while. Again, I didn't know how long. And that is, I said this a lot during my incarceration and I almost forget what it was like to be in there, but that was the single scariest thing of being incarcerated was not the violence, which there there was plenty. It was the thought of maybe getting really sick, knowing that you yeah. would not be cared for. The resources aren't yeah. there, but even if they are and where they are, the thought of getting really sick was really scary. Like I saw girls die because of dehydration, just lack of access to good medical care. It was really sad, really scary. Yeah. So your student loans, like you're still expected to pay them even if you're incarcerated and not earning an income. Well, they certainly kept accruing tons and tons of interest over those five years. But, you know, we put them into forbearance, which was something that the actual lender, it was up to their discretion. But I think with the situation, they understood that my income was $0 and it was going to be $0 and putting it into some sort of, you know, bad status was not going to make it any more likely that I was going to repay in the future. Right. Whereas the understanding was that as soon as I was released, I would start making those payments again, which is exactly what happened. So yeah, that was, that's something that is definitely probably going to be paying on those for the rest of my life. Yeah, because it was just like a large lump sum collecting interest for five years. For five years, yeah. Five years, seven months. And then the the interest rates have just recently gone up again, another couple percent, which is just, it's just really hard to keep up. But that's what it is, you know. There's going to be that sort of pendulum swing for this season of my life where I was gone for a long time. And there's a lot to have to make up for in more ways than just financially. And so what did you have to do for work in the first little bit once you were in like incarcerated? They assign you a job at random. And I was a porter, which is just cleaning. And I was assigned to a specific building or room, which is transportation, which I think was for when inmates were going to maybe ride out to the hospital for a procedure or if they were riding to be transferred to a different facility because there were three facilities within the state. And I went to report the first day and my supervisor said, oh, you know, I have another inmate that I really like who comes and cleans for me. So, you know, I'll call you if I really need you, but I probably won't and I'm not going to reclassify you. So you can just whatever. Like, sweet. I'm about to read and sleep for the next five years. And, you know, they had put me on a fair few different psych meds when I first got there. I guess it's just standard practice. It was really easy to just sleep about 18 hours a day. Wow. 
And were you communicating with your family? Yeah, I was calling my family pretty frequently, you know, as often as I felt like I needed to, to get a little boost, a little familiarity, a little kindness, but not so often as to bother them, worry them. I didn't want them to think that I was, you know, sitting around, you know, waiting to just call them. I wanted to create some type of illusion that I was okay and safe. Yeah. Wow. Were you mostly safe? Did you find community friends? Not when I first was in general population, when I was first kind of, they call it popped out. I popped out of admissions. I was living in this open bay housing, which was 300 women in one room with just these long, they call them bays, but it's just like an aisle with these firewalls that are maybe five feet tall. They're designed to be tall enough for, you know, to be able to see over them. So when you're on a top bunk, you just see everything and everything sees you. The guards just kind of walk around all night long and there's count times all throughout the day and all throughout nighttime where you have to be on your bunk. You're not allowed to be anywhere at any point where you're not able to reach out and touch your bunk. That's considered out of place unless you're actively in the day room. So no, I don't really feel like I made friends in that time. I would say that I definitely formed connections to kind of get through, but I think everyone was in survival mode. It wasn't until I started noticing all the dogs around the compound and the medication that they had given me started to have some pretty scary side effects where I started to sleepwalk. Even from the top bunk, that was, you know, a little bit nerve wracking. And I just wasn't, it wasn't right. I was a zombie. And that's what they prefer is a bunch of medicated individuals. They're less likely to fight. They're less likely to really do much of anything except maybe open their own food and eat it in the middle of the night while they're asleep. That was one of the main side effects was sleep eating and sleepwalking. And did they know that you were doing this? One of the women who bunked near me is the one that pointed it out to me and said I was up in the middle of the night, like climbed down off my bed, was in my commissary bag, eating some chips in the middle of the night. And so that's when I went and put in a request to talk to the mental health department and try and switch my meds. And they switched me. They they literally handed me a list and said, you can pick whatever you want. Just tell us. I didn't know what I was looking at. So I picked something and I took it one time and I just felt so messed up, so intoxicated and and drugged and I hated it. I, from the very next day, started refusing most of the meds that they had been giving me and the ones that had been in my system long enough. I immediately had them start cutting the dose and weaned off and put in an application to go to one of the two dog programs that I knew that there would be structure and expectation and I'd be living in a little bit set aside, somewhere a little bit safer, somewhere a little bit more protected. I would go from that 300 person room down into a four man cell. I would be working with animals, which is something I'd always wanted to do. And so that was really the turning point of, gosh, not just the transformative and productive power of my incarceration, but my whole career and life (laughs) definitely really turned at that point. Did you get in right away to one of the programs that you applied for? Yeah, they definitely did some type of interview process with the inmate leadership in that program. It was really more, I think, so that the folks who were applying understood what they were signing up for because it was yeah like a 12 hour a day job. It was like going to boot camp. It was very intense, especially the first period of time in that program. I was accepted. I went and I was there for over two years, two plus almost two and a half years in that program and became, you know, you go through the process of becoming a dog handler. And then I became one of the trainers who trained the new trainers. And then I became a groomer and then I was training new groomers. And then I was running the humane society program. So it was such a wide variety of experience. And then also just a high volume of experience. Like the number of dogs that I worked with and had hands on in that period of time is you really don't, get that anywhere else. So that was really, really special. And it gave me a purpose and a focus again. I was content to be drugged and sleep and read for five years and just sit there and 
that changed because I had something in front of me that needed to be walked and needed to be trained and needed yeah. to be fed and needed to be taken out and it needed to be cared for. And that took precedence. That was the motivation that I needed to be a different version of myself. Wow. And what is the program? Can you talk a bit about the purpose of the program and what's the outcome? Yeah, the program has a couple of different facets to it, which is really neat. And it's self-sustaining in that way because they have a staff daycare program where staff members, so of the institution, but really any state employee, so a highway patrol officer, a judge could bring their dog for daycare, boarding, grooming, training, and it's ridiculously cheap, like so affordable. I think one of the facilities, it was $3 a day for a daycare. Wow. That's a 10th of what you would pay for even a good, you know, even a cheaper facility out here. And this is so different because you're not just having your dog in a group with maybe a couple of people. Your dog has a single individual assigned to them. They are with a person the whole day. So there's so much more individual attention and we're able to take in dogs that wouldn't be candidates for a traditional daycare because they're not just tossed into group play. They're being separate and engaged. And the routine of that program, we would do an hour-long walk, an hour-long class on something related to dogs, and then a half an hour training circle. And then we'd repeat that in the afternoon after, you know, we'd have to go back for our count time and our chow. And then there would be things in the evening too that we would need to be participating in. So there was a lot of structure. And the staff program, the money from that and the way that it was run was they, I believe they'd established as a nonprofit. So they were able to take the money from that to fund the Humane Society part of it, where we would pull, we usually had between four to six dogs from a local shelter there at the facility living there. And they would be assigned to an inmate for six weeks. And then they would rotate to a different inmate. So it was just the experience for the different handlers and the experience for the dogs to get to work with different people as well. It makes them so much more adoptable. And a lot of times they got adopted by like, staff members and stuff who fell in love with them because they'd see them out and about. And there was also a a service dog portion where a service dog company would bring her pups and they would live with us for also four to six week rotations where they were getting their basic training. Because again, having somebody who it's their full-time job to work with that dog for $20 a month. (laughs) Yeah. It's, It's a really valuable resource. And again, an untapped resource because Nobody in that program was looking for an extra payday. We were looking for a good experience and the opportunity to get to make a difference and also be with animals. So it didn't feel, I don't know. I think some people worry about these types of programs being exploiting inmates in some way. And I think that this is definitely a situation where this was a passion driven little community. I don't know that anybody was really making much money off of it. I think it was really just feeding into itself and keeping it going. And I think, like you said, for a lot of people, that was the only reason you would have had to get up and keep going. And I didn't know about the grooming thing, too. So then they also teach you how to groom dogs. Well, they had a grooming room and they offered it. And there was a member of the program who had some pretty substantial experience on the outside she was one of my roommates and really good friends actually until she was released and she was in for 10 years. So she and I had a couple of years of overlap and she taught me when she left, I kept it going and taught a ton of other inmates. And then after about two and a half, between two and a half and three years of my incarceration, I applied to go to a different facility, their minimum security facility up in the North of the state. They had a dog program there as well that had, really wanted to bring some of that grooming knowledge up there. So that was an opportunity for me to transfer to a place that had much more resources. It was so much smaller. Um, The difference between the central facility was about 3,600, I want to say, and the facility up north was 600. So substantially smaller, Uh, both in the good and the bad ways, but mostly in the good ways. And I was able to bring that knowledge up to that program and sort of help educate some of their program members about the grooming procedures and how to do that. And they were able to offer that service at like a much higher level, which was, you know, good for them. That facility also offered more opportunities to work up to even like a two-man cell. So just more opportunities to kind of be that little bit more comfortable, have that little bit more privacy. So 
five years goes by. And what happens at the end of five years? What is leaving prison like? Uh, well, I was incarcerated and released during the pandemic. So leaving oh. prison was leaving lockdown to go to lockdown. Unfortunately, that was both being incarcerated during the pandemic and also being released during the pandemic were both their own unique experiences. The pandemic within the facility was absolutely terrifying. I know that they had us lining up to get our temperatures taken every day. We were on 23-hour-a-day lockdown. We were not to leave our cells. We were not interacting with anybody outside of our units. Eventually, they you know, were able to loosen some of that. We had to wear masks at all times, at all times. Yeah. I got a horrible lip infection at one point because during the one hour that we were allowed to be out, our unit was allowed to be out on the yard each day for that, you know, the one hour we weren't locked down. I got really into running because what else are you going to do? Yeah. <laughs> and so I had constructed these hopefully slightly more breathable masks using yarn and an old t-shirt and just like running and sweating. And I got a horrible lip infection from having to wear a mask and sweating underneath of it. But the thought of sitting still 24 hours a day and not being able to move when I really had worked up to running for hours. I had done a couple yeah. half marathons at that point. And I think I did 23 miles one day. Just I ran from the moment they opened the yards until the moment they closed them down and sent me back in. I just went somewhere else. That was my way of sort of dissociating. Yeah. When you get out, are you on, is it called probation? So there's two different types of supervision you can be on when you're released. There's probation, which is really strict. It's much more time-consuming and invasive. You're usually checking in every week with your PO, with your probation officer. Parole, what they, I think they now call it, or at least in Ohio, they call it post-release control, is a little bit different. I really only reported in to the office once or twice. And then it was mostly what they actually call non-reporting, which is where you just talk on the phone once a month. I was supposed to be on, or rather I was ordered to be on three years of post-release control based on the degree of felony, which I was charged with. However, they released me after one year just because they had no issues. And it makes sense for them to keep their caseloads open for the people that need a little bit more supervision. Yeah. So that was an absolute blessing to be able to be released from that because that was really limiting in terms of just travel and work and trying to get back to some type of normal life. Yeah. And where do you move to? I had to apply months in advance to be allowed to leave and be released to another state. When you're on supervision, you are on supervision in the state in which you were incarcerated. So Pennsylvania could have said, no, you're not coming. We don't have room for you on our caseload. We're not taking you. And I would have just been stuck in Ohio. And I probably would have ended up in a halfway house. Having to figure it out. Having to figure it out. Yeah. My parents wanted me to come back and live with them. So that's, you know, that was the plan. And thankfully the interstate compact was approved. It's my understanding that Pennsylvania and Ohio have very similar judicial systems, uh, just in the term, in terms of the way the supervision is run. So those are frequently approved. So I, I wasn't totally petrified because I had a lot of documentation to prove I have no support here. I have support right. there. I had job offer letters. I had, you know, family statements. I had all kinds of stuff. I had a place to live. You know, if I stayed yeah. there, I would have been a burden on them, on the state. But it definitely made the moments, the weeks, the days leading up to my release really frustrating because once the administration there knew that I was leaving the state, they literally told me, you're not our problem anymore. They stopped helping. They stopped offering resources, which would have been great if they just open the gates and let me out at that point since apparently yeah. I wasn't there I wasn't their problem anymore they actually did a 10-day quarantine prior to leaving because of the pandemic so 10 days before my release I went into quarantine with another group of people that were being released within you know a couple of days of me and my dad and my brother came and picked me up we drove 10 hours home <laughs> and that was you know a long and emotional day to get to see my dog after five yeah. years and my cousin who I'm very close with and who, you know, he and I just formed a really special relationship talking on the phone over those five years, really made an intentional work 
at having a, a adult friendship, which is really kind of cool to have family that you can turn back to after all those years and say, hey, I know we're related, but let's be friends too. Yeah, totally. You said you had job offers. So had you been applying for jobs or did somebody you know offer you a job? Those letters were probably more just for to help my my application. They were right. family friends of my parents who, you know, I'm sure they could have moved some things around and made a position for me Given somewhere. You a job. Yeah. Right, right. But ultimately when I came home, I ended up applying for a bunch of jobs and getting another corporate contract, which was what I expected was to just go back to the corporate gig. That's what I knew. That's yeah, what I was good at. That's what makes the money. And I got it. And I did it. I, I did it well. And I love the people that I worked with actually during that contract were great people to work with. I absolutely, I loved that. The work didn't do anything for me anymore. And I also had started taking some dog training clients on the side and it just got harder and harder to show up to a job that I felt like anyone that navigated PowerPoint well could do. <laughs> yeah. Whereas on the other side, I had this job that was so fulfilling and I was helping people and I felt like making yeah. a real difference and I loved it and it was exhausting in the good way. And it, it just got harder and harder. So I ended up leaving that contract six months early, halfway through, it was supposed to be a year contract to sort of go full time into the dog training. And within you know, a couple months after that, opened up my own business and have really been doing it on my own since then. And it is, it's just an absolute dream to be able to help owners all over the world and jump into the rescue like I have. And I didn't expect it to go this way, but, you know, there was still a lot of shame when I was working this corporate job thinking that someone's going to find me out. So someone's going to know, somebody's going to find out and then it'll all be just taken away, right? It'll just be gone again. And that ended up being really hard to live with. I think impossible to live with because yeah. I became a really like feral person and maybe I was just feral from still being newly released. They say it takes as long to transition out as it does to transition in. And I just, it just was, it wasn't right for me. I knew I needed to be doing something for my heart and not going back into the same patterns that led me down yeah. a path that I want nothing to do with anymore. That's so incredible. And so can you tell me a little bit about what is your company and like what you do and how do people find you? Yeah. So I think that one of the big moments for my career with the dogs was when I connected with one of my best friends to this day who her name is Jerry and she's a virtual dog trainer and bringing that into my life just in terms of being able to help people everywhere and not just within my own community and knowing that you know getting to clients was really a challenge for me so being able to remove barriers not just for me but for owners who really need that help not only having her bring that into my life, but also her being someone who is an open public figure about being a person who has made a lot of mistakes. I can't tell you what it did for me that somebody encouraged me to shine the light into those areas and not just stuff them down deeper. Because when I first got out, people were telling me I should change my name and just hide oh. it away and pretend like it never happened. And it's really hard to live like that. To think that you need to pretend to be something else or somebody else. And so I chose not to do that. I don't want to do something that's unhealthy and unproductive. I don't want to live in shame, you know, and stay stuck in that lie that I'm the only person that's ever made a mistake because that's ridiculous. Right. A lot of people yeah. have made mistakes. And will I always be judged for the worst night of my life? Probably. But I feel now like it's much more likely that people are going to find something in my story that resonates with them or that empowers them. Yes. And the ones that it pushes away, that well, that's fine too. That's part of owning your narrative is that it's going to isolate some people, but it's not really about them at this point. It has to be about me and what, I, what I'm doing from here on forward. And I'm trying to put as much good as I can back out into the world to make up for, you know, the not so great things that I've done. And so learning from Jerry and being able to partner with her on virtual training 
has absolutely revolutionized the way that I can work with clients. So to train with me, it doesn't matter where you live. We have a really unique platform where we're not even meeting on Zoom calls once a week. We're actually in your pocket every single day. It's very consistent and accountable and really is about coaching owners to be the best handler for their own dog. Because me being a great dog handler, which I am, doesn't help owners at all. That's where I think the industry was falling short. And she saw this gap of, okay, but if we're not teaching the owners the skills and we leave, I I can't move in with my clients as much as they ask me, I'm not (laughs) going to do it. So yeah, anyone that wants to either support my work with the rescues or talk to me about their dog or find a way to train with me, you can find me at freedbytraining.com, which is the brand that I'm sure there's a lot of folks out there who see it and don't know what it means, but I'm sure that a lot of people see it and do realize that, you know, I I was freed by training. I was a very broken person and dog training literally saved and changed my life. And I've seen it save and change a ton of other lives. I also have a Patreon with a lot of behind the scenes content for the rescue work and has like a bunch of full training videos and courses. That's just patreon.com slash freed by training. And Jerry and I have a podcast where we give away free clinical behavior consulting to owners based on severity of need and not ability to pay. So it's 100% free. So they can listen to that on kind of any of their podcast apps. It's called Unpacked. And we're basically unpacking a case in each episode. So it's the only clinical dog training podcast out there right now. Or they can apply to be on it and get free behavioral work with us at unpacked.stream. That's amazing. There's so much going on. And the work that I've been doing lately with the rescue, you know, you and I spoke for the first time right when I got back from being down in Mississippi, working boots on the ground with that hoarding case with um, over 96 dogs, which I've got one of them right behind me and another one down in my basement right now. And I've been coordinating nationwide placement for 96 dogs and it's winding down. It's not done. We're in our, I really feel our final push to get these dogs into rescues, but being able to partner with a really amazing organization, New York City Second Chance Rescue, literally based out of the heart of the city and Handover Rover out of Phoenix has just been, like I said, one of those moments where you look around and, oh, like I, I am in my dream. This is devastating and tragic, but this is what I've always wanted to do is be able to help animals. And I'm helping animals in a big way. And that's not the path that I thought my life would originally take, but I am, I'm happy with it. I like the person that I am. I'm dedicating pretty much every minute of every day to helping the lives of animals and the people who love animals and focusing far less on, you know, my own path and my own security. That is going to come a little bit later. For now, it has to be about the animals. Oh, I love that so much. I know you're definitely an animal person. How many? I know. Well, I have five dogs. Five dogs? How many? Just five. Well, I, my ex, who I'm still friends with, had five. We had five cats, five dogs. It's so many. But yeah, it's like, I don't know, something about rescue animals is such a, you just get to see them come out of their shell in a way that you don't get, you know, with a purebred puppy. So I always love the sort of like underdog stories and the dogs that are really, you know, not out of their shell and you get to really see them come out. Yeah. We had, I think, 15 fosters last year in the last year-ish come through and people ask a lot, how do you do it? How do you give them up at the end? And I don't know, maybe I just really like having the one dog and <laughs> just being a one dog kind of mom, but it's really special seeing them go on to something else. And then knowing that, that clears room for you to give that experience to another animal and help see them yeah. through. And Coco, who is with, she owns Handover Rover, the place in Phoenix, she really struck my heart in a deep way when she compared her home run rescue to a halfway house. She's like, I just need to be a soft place to land for these dogs and get them ready to go on to their next thing. And that to me was exactly why I personally feel so drawn to rescue because their story is my story. Like I'm a second chance person. These are second chance dogs. And I know how healing it is for everyone involved, right? To be a part of this. And yeah, I just, I didn't, like I said, I didn't expect it, but it's exactly what I was supposed to be doing. 
I always loved animals, but it was like, unless I was going to be a veterinarian, that that wasn't a viable career because right. dog trainers were not, I don't know, this was a long time ago. Dog trainers, it wasn't seen as a career option at that point. Certainly not one that was laid out for me. It was either go to college and do this or go to college and do that. Yeah. But I do think we need to shift this narrative of what equals success and what equals mm -hmm. happiness. And I don't think that it is for everybody, college, student loans, corporate ladder. I think for some people, like, why can't we celebrate the people that are happy doing things that maybe weren't considered, you know, quote unquote, traditional careers like dog training and working in rescue because the world needs it more than, you know, it needs accountants. Yeah. You know, my partner is from the UK and they don't really have this kind of problem because it's not impressed upon them that they have to graduate high school and as a 17 or 18 year old decide what they're going to do with the rest of their life. Yeah. They take time off to go figure it out. And I think that's something that we need to look at and consider, but it's certainly taking a year off to figure it out was not an option for me. Yeah. And it really should have yeah. been. If I look at who I was at 17 and 18, I'm not the same person at all. Mm -mm. I didn't know anything. I, I thought nothing. I did, but yeah. Right. I made very costly decisions confidently and I'm still paying for them. Yeah. Wow. That's wild. It's true. I love if it's it. on your resume. <laughs> well, I love that. I'm so thankful that you reached out and that you were able to share your story because I think it's so like even it's so relatable. I think I say that to everybody, but I can see myself being 24, making some really stupid decisions that could have, you know, I could have been you easily. Anybody could have. And I think it's important to talk about that. Well, I really appreciate you having me on because when I read the title, I did not sign up for this. I definitely thought, man, I've said that a lot. Totally. I love that. Well, in the show notes, I'm going to link like the podcast, your Instagram, like all of your stuff so people can find you and follow the work that you do. And yeah, I'm just excited to keep following along and seeing what good you're doing in the world. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Carly. And I appreciate it. And you know who to reach out thank to you. if you ever have a dog question. Amazing. Okay, I'll let you go because or otherwise I'm going to talk to you about dogs all day. Forever. We start with dogs. We end with dogs. That's just my I life. Know. Yeah, I mean, it's I just it everywhere. So <laughs> yeah, I love it so much. All right. Have a good day and we will talk really soon. Okay. Thanks, Carlene. Bye. Okay. Bye. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode. I hope you found our conversation informative and entertaining. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to follow me on social media, share this podcast with your friends, and leave a review at ratethispodcast.com slash I did not sign up for this. Your support means the world to me. If you want more interviews, exclusive content, and ad-free episodes, join the Patreon at patreon.com slash I did not sign up for this. I hope you all have a fantastic week ahead and we'll talk soon. Hey there. Welcome to 7th Heaven, a lesbian recap. I'm Lindsay, and I'm joined by my co-host and real-life partner, Carling. We're diving into the 90s hit drama through today's lens. Get ready for our off-the-cuff commentary and peeling back the layers of the Camden family. We'll tackle everything from family rules, life lessons, and 90s fashion. Join us every week for a light-hearted queer perspective and a trip down memory lane. Whether you're a die-hard fan or new to the show, this recap is for you. So find us anywhere you get your podcasts at 7th Heaven, a lesbian recap.